everybody. Good to see you all out tonight. Um, yeah, my name's Craig, and it's my pleasure to sort of bring my part to this series called The Table. And uh, before we do, as we do, I'm just going to open in prayer for us, so let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you that uh, tonight we get to not only look at um, Scripture together, but we get to uh, participate in your, your supper, the Lord's Supper, and um, then we're freely invited to uh, engage together with a, a larger meal. And so tonight, Lord, we, we really are at the table in every respect. And for this reason, Lord, we, um, we just want you to not only open our stomachs, but open the eyes of our understanding and um, help us to be able to see in your word just how vital this whole ministry of food and uh, celebration and uh, conversation around food becomes for you and for us. So we ask your blessing upon us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, all this talk about food just makes you hungry. You find that? Hey, whenever we're talking about uh, this, this series called The Table, and then we go out and eat food, it's just as well. Otherwise, some of us will probably go off and rob McDonald's or something. Okay? In Jesus' name. Well, um, I don't know about you, but um, I realized pretty quickly that the word family and the word familiar, obviously very similar sounding words, uh, they go together, don't they? One of the things that we do when we're growing up, growing up is that we think that family is the same for everybody else's experience. You say things like, isn't that normal? Because what you're doing is you're reflecting upon your own experience, how you celebrate birthdays, whether you do or you don't, whether you do Christmas or we have holidays. All of these things are family and they are familiar. And so for me, when I was a young guy, um, I was raised uh, out to Pune, but both my parents had a rural background, so farming background. So whenever we turn up for... Christmas, either at my mum's folks' place or my dad's folks' place, um, there was always good food. And um, one of the things about my mum's folks is that they owned a farm down in the King Country, so we'd drive the three and a half hours down past Pew Pew, uh, where Paul came from, and into the boondocks of Martry. And no one really knows where Martry is. You have to know where Taumanui is first, and then you go off the beaten track from Taumanui, and most people know that Taumanui is off the beaten track. So by the time you get to Martry, and as a kid, you felt beaten. And um, we would roll in the door, not the door, the driveway, and we'd look to the left, and there was the big oak tree, which my grandfather called the killing tree, because that was where the sheep were slaughtered, the ones that they would eat at home. Okay, so we would um, drive in the driveway, we'd look to the left, and about 80 metres away, beside the old cow shed that should have fallen over, but by the grace of God, it still stood, there was always a, a, a mutton hanging there with a muslin cloth over it. My grandfather had just prepared it, and that's what we were going to eat for the week. Okay, So that was our, my background. Now, both sides of the family had this sort of tradition going back to the UK, my European um, whānau, my European family, and uh, that meant that because we had this tradition of European food around Christmas time, we all had to pretend that we were living in the deepest, darkest winter in the middle of London at Christmas time. And so we would have steam pudding for dessert on Christmas Day. How many of you had that experience? Steam pudding on Christmas Day, and it's 28 degrees outside, humidity of 95%, and you're saying, thanks, Granny, you know, bring it on, hot custard over steam pudding. Now, we had this tradition as well that changed a little bit, but uh, my grandparents used to stick coins in the steam pudding, 
Yeah? You remember that? All right. You've got to wrap them up these days if you're going to do that because otherwise it'll kill you. All right. They're different, different coins. So if Granny's putting coins into the steam pudding today, she's got a subversive plot to take you out. All right. So um, she has to wrap them up in tinfoil before she puts them in. And I think if you put it in notes these days and cook them, they'll probably melt. So, you know, um, but tradition is really, really cool, eh? Tradition is really cool. And um, for, for me, um, tradition was just one of those things that you didn't even realize that you were part of. It wasn't until you got on life a little bit and you look back and you go, oh, that was cool. I can remember one particular year, it was a really hot summer's day and we we're in Hamilton on my dad's side of the family. And uh, my uncle brought one of his, his workers along to the meal. My uncle was, um, had, a, had a farm in the Waikato and uh, he brought this guy along because he had nowhere to go for Christmas. And I was lining up behind him uh, having this meal. I was probably about 14 or 15. And all I could hear from him was saying, wow, I've never seen so much food. Wow, I've never seen so much food. And in that moment, I realized that not everybody does exactly what I do. And that is go to Christmas and overindulge. And the whole tradition of my family was that uh, the woman would prepare, the men would drink beer, the men would drink too much food, and then the men would all go and lie under the apple tree and go to sleep while the kids did the dishes. That was the tradition. That's how the world worked. Okay? I don't know if that was your experience, but that was certainly my experience. Well, what we're going to do today is tonight is we're going to look at tonight's um, talk that I'm bringing and the Lord's Supper here and the meal that's being prepared for us out in the cafe as all part of the service, okay? It's all part of the service. So the service doesn't actually finish here today, but it finishes when you leave the building, okay? All rummy tum full and contented, okay? And we've got to stop for a moment, stop compartmentalizing, putting our life into separate bits. Um, <laughs> We've got to realize that when we talk about the things of the Christian faith, um, what we do together is church, not just whether we sing or listen to sermons or pray, but it's all church. Now, I'm going to take us to the Lord's Supper right now, and it's a very familiar passage for us, but we're going to look at it, and then we're going to go back and talk about its roots, okay? Because um, if you already know the roots of this Lord's Supper, um, we all need refreshing on the power of it, but... Let's, uh, let's have a look at this. It says, um, I'll read it from here. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Amen. So this is the table that we're gathering around tonight. Our, our series is called The Table. And tonight we're gathering around the Lord's table in the fashion that he described to us. But... Um, this, this Lord's table, as we know it now, that's a, that's a wafer in there. It's not a boiled egg, okay? So just, just make sure you know what you're looking at there. Um, this, this Lord's Supper table was prepared 
before Jesus arrived. So when Jesus came in to actually lead this, what we call the Last Supper, um, it was the Last Supper because it was Jesus' Last Supper in this fashion, but it was a supper that had been established for decades and indeed centuries. And it came out of a tradition. And just like I talk about my own family traditions of eating too much, overindulging and sleeping under the tree, um, the Jewish community, the people of Israel had their own traditions and they went back to the times when they escaped from slavery. So it's a very, very powerful story. If you just try to take a story, think about slavery in any form, and you take that picture in your mind of being oppressed, of being under bondage, of being intimidated, threatened, and having your freedom so limited, if you take that image and you graft it back into your family story, all of a sudden, you've got a very, very powerful thing in your history, haven't you? Okay, you might be generations on from that, but you would say, my people, me, we once were slaves. Okay? And so that is a powerful, powerful image, isn't it? Um, and so the, the, the reason why I'm mentioning this is because the people of Israel were indeed slaves. Uh, they were planted in Egypt and they prospered. God planted them in Egypt and they prospered, but they prospered to the point where the Egyptians were intimidated by them. Okay, And they took them and they put them into, into slavery and they were just basically there to serve the people. And for 400 years, this people lived there in bondage under, under the Pharaoh's leadership and, uh, and they became a, a real problem to the people of Egypt because they prospered. God's hand was upon them. And when your slaves are doing so well, all of a sudden they, they intimidate you because there could be an uprising, you see? So you, you oppress them more. See how it goes? They do well. You need to oppress them further. So the cries of the people were heard when they cried out to God and say, hey, God, where are you? 400 years is a long, long time, God. We've been waiting for you to rescue us. Do you think, think that's fair enough? Do you think it's a fair request? 400 years, I'd say so. And so God raised up Moses. Many of you know the story, but Moses, a very reluctant hero in this story, at 80-something years old, was sent off to Pharaoh to say, let my people go. Let my people go. And Pharaoh said, yeah, nah. Yeah, nah. Okay? But like when your boys asked to do dishes. Yeah, nah. And so what happened was God said, trust me. Trust me. I'm going to break the will of Pharaoh and he's going to let the people go. And so what happens is there is... Um, Curse upon curse, plague upon plague comes upon the nation of Egypt. And we have all of these different things that happen, a plague of blood, a plague of frogs, you know, invade the whole land, plague of gnats, plague of flies everywhere. Okay, so all of these things come on the people one after another. Every time the plague comes, Moses goes to Pharaoh and said, see, God is against you. Let the people go. And you'll be okay. And every time Pharaoh goes, yeah, nah. He says yes, and then he doesn't do it. Okay? He says yes, and then he doesn't do it. And so uh, this becomes increasingly desperate. And then finally, there is a plague called the plague of the firstborn. Moses, under the direction of God's leadership, goes to Pharaoh and says, if you don't let the people go, this is the deal. The firstborn out of every marriage 
the firstborn out of every uh, animal, sheep, goats, cows, anything, the firstborn is going to die overnight. The angel of death is going to pass over Egypt. And the firstborn will be assigned to you. Sorry, firstborn dying will be assigned to you that God is against you. All right. Now, if you don't wake up when that happens, uh, you're, you've got problems, okay? So, of course, the nation of Egypt itself were slaves. Sorry, the nation of Israel themselves were, were enslaved in Egypt. And they were going to be exposed to the angel of death passing over as well, taking out their firstborn. And so what happened is God told Moses to, to enact something that um, would stop the angel of death having an impact upon the Israelites. And uh, it all involved um, this little guy here. Okay, sweet, eh? Okay, a lamb. What's the technical term for a lamb at this age, Paul? A lamb lamb, okay. <laughs> yeah, okay. We send them off to the works at what sort of weight here? Forty kilos, yep, okay. So they're about a year old, coming up a year. Yeah, nine months old. So this is the deal. So what happens is God says, I want you to, each household, take a lamb without a blemish, a perfect one, just like this one here a male lamb, and here's the deal. I want you to bring it into your household, and I want you to look after it for four days. Now, you know what happens when you bring a little lamb into your house? Everybody loves it, eh? All the kids go, oh, could I have a turn to cuddling? Oh, could I have a turn feeding it? Okay? And, and, and the whole deal, really, is designed to break the heart of the family. You go, hold on, what's God up to breaking people's hearts? Well, <clears throat> this animal, this lamb, is going to be slaughtered. And the reason why it's slaughtered is to pay the price for the sins that the family had committed. So all of a sudden, there was an emotional connection with this lamb and an emotional attachment to the fact that your sins and mine had actually caused the death of this little lamb, which we now love. Okay? One of the hardest things for kids to do when they get a little lamb is to what? To not give it a name. Don't give the lamb a name. Oh, we want to call it Bruce. Don't call it name. Okay? Don't call it a name because dad's going to have to take Bruce out the back and kill it. Okay? So this is real stuff. This is rugged stuff. Okay? Okay? Contrary to popular belief, meat does not grow on a polystyrene carton and pop up at the supermarket. All right? Real live animals. And so what happens is the, the father of the house would take this little lamb and he would, he would slaughter it. He'd cut its throat and the blood is taken and it is pasted, painted on the window frames of the house and the doorway, okay? And so this lamb, this blood of this lamb is now spilt as a sacrifice for sin, but also a symbol and a sign to the angel that would pass over Egypt 
and see that that blood there has paid the price for the sins of that household. Yeah, you with me? Okay, so. So that meant that when this plague happened and this angel passed over on this particular evening, um, the nation of Israel's children were safe. But for the rest of Egypt, the firstborn of cows, donkeys, horses, goats, sheep, and people died. And it said that there was great wailing could be heard throughout the whole of Egypt. Well, you could only imagine that, couldn't you? And finally, 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 Pharaoh said, yeah, you can go. And so they gathered up their stuff and they took a lot of stuff with them that was gifted to them. By this time, the Egyptians were so pleased to get rid of them, they gave them gold and silver and everything else. And they went, and off they went, and they went far down the road, and then Pharaoh did his usual thing, and he went, nah, and they started to chase him. But that's another story, okay? But this story, the story of the Passover, defines the nation of Israel. You see, if you have been in slavery for 400 years and God does a miracle to release you from slavery, to save you from death while those around you died and suffered, you are going to remember this as a people, aren't you? You're going to remember this every year it happens till your dying day and you would have passed that story on to your children and your children's children and so it goes on. Yeah, And so this Passover becomes entrenched in the lifestyle and the history and the future planning for all that Israel is about as a nation. Passover becomes this critical element that defines them as a people. Just in the same way that you know, today we, we see Māori with, with haka and moko, other things that are defin, uh, defining points within Māoridom. Yeah, you see a haka, you go... That's Māori, they're Tangata Whenua, they're from Aotearoa, New Zealand, yeah? Defining. So when you see the nation of Israel stopping and celebrating the Passover, not just for one day, but for a whole week's festival, you say, that's who these people are. They are defined by what they do and what they eat. See, the eating is all a big part of it. What they do around that table is really, really important because that meal is sacred and it celebrates the events of that Passover. When I was a, a younger guy, I used to do um, quite a bit of sport, and one of the sports that I did was rowing. And I remember I was working in town at the time in Tauranga here, and uh, there was this old guy who used to come into the bank where I was working, and he saw that had this jersey on, had Tauranga Rowing Club. And uh, he looked at me and he goes, do you row? I said, yep. He goes, oh, I used to row when I was a young fella. I said, oh, really? How'd you do? He says, oh, pretty good. And he says, I've got a secret for you, you know. I said, what's that? And he says, you know what you need to eat if you want to win? I said, oh, I don't know, but I'm sure you're going to tell me. It was one of those uh, rhetorical questions where you didn't have an answer, but he was going to tell you. He says, if you want to win, you've got to eat steak and beer. Steak and beer. That will make you win rowing races. Okay, mate, steak and beer, steak and beer. And so he'd come in, and every two or three months, this guy would wander up to me and say, how's the rowing going? I'd say, oh, yeah, we're doing all right, doing all right. You're winning? Not every time. More steak, more beer. (laughs) (laughs) So for him, the culture connected with rowing, or probably for any sport for that matter, was steak and beer, steak and beer. Yeah, he probably was really strong in his 
teeth fell out. But, you know, that for him was his culture, his story, and who was I to argue with that? Okay, but I'm just trying to build a picture here. When we, um, when we see these sorts of shops in town, um, the big thing that we're trying to be told is that um, if you eat this food, you're healthy and you're enlightened. Okay, you're enlightened. You know a little bit more than others. Okay, not only is the food healthy, it's grown without artificial fertilizers, but it's usually been transported from within the local area because we don't want to accumulate any of those negative carbon credits against you for getting your food from a place that's far away. All right. So you've got this, this story that's attached with this sort of food. Okay. And so when you sit down and you eat your tofu and your organic um, roast that's been grown in a chemistry lab, um, you have a story to tell, don't you? You have a story to tell, and it's usually you know, about um, how you feel healthier and all these things. So you've got a, you've got a story. Right? So what I'm saying is that food starts to tell us stories and it starts to speak to us about who we are. Okay, but what about, what about this food? Good old wholesome roast chicken. You know, I've had an apple pie there or something like that. What does that remind us of? That reminds us of mum, often. More often than not, eh? Because you know what mums want to do? Doesn't matter what age you are. Like I go, uh, you know, I go home, see my mum and my dad, and the thing that mum wants to do, she wants to fatten up her little boys. Okay, and she's had no trouble doing that over the years, I can assure you. <laughs> but she wants her little boys to roll out of there, going, "Oh, mum loves us. Oh, oh gosh, it's so good. I won't be able to, I won't be able to eat tomorrow." Okay, so she gives us roast potatoes and gravy and vegetables and you know, roast whatever piles of it. See, there's a narrative going on here. There's a story going on here. And we're defined by that story. Well, my waistline's defined by that story anyway. But, um, but what story? The story is that mums love to bless their kids with, with nice food. And at a minimum, they can go away and say, mom loves us because she fills us up. Okay? What about, um, what about culture? Okay? Food tells a story with respect to different cultures. Okay, so um, when you have a hangi, as this picture is up here, this is um, a really high cultural value. And the hangi isn't just about the food, the hangi is about the preparation, isn't it? It's about the, the camaraderie, it's about the digging the hole, it's about building the fire, it's about preparing the food, it's about putting it in, it's about praying heaps that you don't pull it out too early. I don't know how many of you have eaten raw hangi, but it's not good. Okay, it's not good. But the thing about food is it comes with a culture, it comes with a story. Now, I've got a little video here that I picked up on, on Google, um, which I, I think sort of captures a little bit of what I'm talking about here with respect to food, with respect to culture, with respect to Māori. You, you listen to how people have described how to build a hangi. Have you got what it takes to become a marae master chef? Well, here are a few things to know as you embark on your quest for hangi supremacy. Make sure you order your meat in advance. You don't want to turn up at the man butcher and there isn't enough meat for your hangi. Wood. Make sure it's dry. You can either be flash and order your wood from any good wood retail outlets or run down to your local ngahiri and find some branches. Take note. 
Long pieces of wood are preferred to short ones, as the long ones can be laid across the pit. Speaking of which, be sure there are no live wires or gas pipes where you dig. Prep. Make sure you have your three meats and desired veggies. Kumana, potatoes, pumpkin, stuffing. It's easier if you lay the bed out the night before so it goes stale. And if you're real flash, get your nanny's favourite blender and stuff it all in. Boom! Chuck it in a muslin sack and you're ready. Hangi stones. This is essential. Don't be getting the stones outside in your backyard as when exposed to molten-like temperatures, they may explode. You need stones that can handle the heat. If you can't find any, just search for abandoned train tracks and chop them up with your dad's chainsaw. About the size of a chicken fillet foot-long sub. Essentials before you light the fire. Spades, gumboots so you don't hammer your toes, metal kai baskets and hooks to pull them out so you don't look like a mug when you burn your hands, and you're going to need some newspaper to start the fire. Due to the difficult nature of finding muslin cloths, the best alternative is sheets. Preferably not your parents' Egyptian cotton sheets. Important, they must be white. Don't use blue sheets. Blue sheets equals blue food. Okay, your hangi wood is stacked up with hangi stones and newspaper over your pit, and your kai is prepared. Now simply get a young match, or if you're balling, a big lighter, and spark it up, Al. Catch us up for part two, where we show you how to finish this baby off. Booyah! I just couldn't help but bring that. I didn't really care if it had anything to do with the sermon. It was, but, but you notice what's going on here. You've got food, you've got culture, and you've got a significant part of the culture being told to us. What's being told? We love having fun, you know, and we love having fun around food, okay? And, and you can, like, you just want to go to the hangi just so that you can enjoy the company of the people there. Isn't that right? So food and culture go together, Okay. Um, I had a laugh about the stealing sheets. I can remember some, some mates of mine stealing their parents' sheets um, to make, do a hangi one time, and that was the last hangi they ever did. But, um, <clears throat> yeah, and that reminded me of my cousins who uh, decided they want to put some carpet in their car uh, because the carpet had got wet and rotten, and so they found this beautiful piece of carpet about two metres by three underneath their parents' bed. They cut it out. <laughs> And it wasn't until six months later that they found out when they moved the bed that they'd stolen the carpet. Anyway, that's just another, another good story. It's got nothing to do with what we're talking about. But, but food and culture go together, you know, and we, we look at food and we see people and we see people and we see food. And, you know, with, with, with uh, Māori, my folks got an orchard out to Puna here and uh, had a great batch of watercress there. And so locals would come and grab the watercress for a boil up. Um, yeah, rotten corn in the stream down below. How many of you have eaten rotten corn before? Not it's not good, eh? Not we think it's not good, but then think about blue cheese. You've got to have a, you know, you've got to have a bit of uh, familiarity with that too. So every church, every church, every culture has got its, uh, got its, uh, its familiarity. So food is really, really critical to us. It defines us. So let's go back to the place where food was invented, the Garden of Eden. And, and the interesting thing about the Garden of Eden is that when you think about all the instructions that God could have given to Adam and Eve, basically he just said, your responsibility is to eat. <laughs> okay, just don't eat this tree. Don't eat the fruit from this tree, okay? But go and eat. And when you think about that, you go, hold on, wasn't there more for us to do than this? Well, walk and talk with God, but eat. eat eating was very defining. And eating is something that we're created for. And when we look at it from that perspective, all of a sudden it comes to our attention that eating expresses our dependence upon God and his provision. And it doesn't matter if you're a a follower of Jesus 
or an absolute atheist, we're all dependent upon the planet's provision for food. Yeah? Every one of us. And in that moment, we have a revelation. We realize just how vulnerable we actually are. Just look upon any place in the world where they're going through a famine, and all of a sudden you realize that, oh, man, if this planet, planet doesn't provide, if God doesn't provide, we are all toast. Well, we won't be toast because we'd eat that. No, we're, we're ruined. Okay? We're going to starve to death. And so all of a sudden things like... Um, Giving thanks for food makes sense to us because we start looking at a plate that becomes leaner and leaner. And we, I don't know if you've noticed it, but the less you have, the more you're grateful for what you've got. And at times we realize that God's provision is, is really just like any other grace in our life. It's a grace that's given and it blesses those who believe and it blesses those who don't. But it's all about the special relationship that we have with God and he will provide for us. And food is a critical element of this. The other thing about food, and um, <clears throat> we don't touch so much on this part of it with the Lord's Supper, but um, preparation of food is a, is a, very, um, it's a very spiritual event. Participating in the proce process of, of food preparation honors God and others. So food, food is designed to be prepared. It's not just designed to be eaten. Okay, certain foods you can just pluck it off the tree, eat, okay? But very few foods actually have that uh, flexibility about them or that freedom about them. Most foods have to be prepared. And therefore, we've got to stop and we've got to look and say, what is it about the preparation of food that God actually wanted us to be able to participate in? It's the, the fellowship, it's the friendship, it's the sharing of work, and it's the ability that we have to do this together. And I can guarantee you more friends are made in the preparation of food than, they are, than there is in the eating of it. Okay, eating of it's fine, but when you put in the mahi, when you put in a bit of work, and when you actually share the responsibility for producing an outcome, not only do you do the work, but there are high fives all around because you've done something wonderful together, and then you get to bless others. Does that make sense? This is stuff we all know, but sometimes we are so familiar with it that we don't put a value upon it. Okay, food is something we're used to. Why? Because mum always made it for us. Okay? We only become conscious of this. That, um, that, you know, all this provision has been going on in our life at a certain point, you know. Teenage boys maybe, or maybe when they're about 25, they wake up, somebody actually made my food. Somebody did my washing. Somebody changed the sheets on my bed. All these things that we have wake up to it one day. So um, I've got a little, <clears throat> another little video for you. It's a story that we're all really, really familiar with. But I thought, you know what? I'm going to show it anyway. The Little Red Hen Once upon a time, there was a little red hen. One day, the little red hen decided to grow some wheat. First, she went to the other farmyard animals to ask for help. Who will help me to plant my wheat? asked the little red hen. Oh, I'm not feeling very well, said the pig, but he didn't look sick. I'm very busy, said the duck, 
but he wasn't really. Then I shall plant the wheat myself, said the little red hen, and so she did. Each day the wheat grew a little bit bigger, and soon the wheat was fully grown. Now I must harvest the wheat, said the little red hen. The little red hen returned to the farmyard and asked the other animals, Who will help me take my wheat to the mill? Can't you see I'm playing in the mud? asked the pig. Can't you see I'm having a swim? asked the duck. The little red hen sighed, and she carried all of the wheat to the mill on her own. It was very tiring work. The miller ground the wheat into flour. And the miller's wife saw how tired the little red hen was, and she baked the flour into bread. The little red hen thanked the miller and his wife by sharing her bread with them. Once again, the little red hen returned to the farmyard. Who will help me eat my bread? asked the little red hen. The duck and the pig were very excited. I will, said the duck. Oh, I will, said the pig. Nope, you will not, said the little red hen. And she ate the bread herself. Hey. Well, of course, um, if you're politically minded, you'll say that's the difference between capitalism and communism. Um, you know, capitalists say that the little red hen is the ultimate capitalist because she works hard and gets it all for herself. But the truth in the saying here is that, um, you know, we've got to be mindful, particularly, I think, in Christian community of, of you know, who's serving who. Not only food, but who's been here all afternoon preparing music for us? You know, who's been here all afternoon preparing what these guys do, the technicians at the back? You know, the ministry of pushing buttons. All of this stuff goes on around us. And, um, and tonight we come to, um, to eat at the Lord's table. And the thing about the Lord's table is it's powerful, not because of the elements, but it's powerful because of how it's been prepared. It's been prepared because ultimately Christ died for us. And he said, I want you to eat this meal in remembrance of me. And Jesus' story connects with the story of uh, that little lamb because what we're told and what we've come to know is that Jesus himself is the Lamb of God who was slain for the sins of the world. And like the little lamb that comes into our homes, we get to love him, but we also have to stand in awe of the fact that that sacrifice was made for our sin. So a very similar story is laid down for us in the table here this table of the Lord's Supper that's prepared for us. And so tonight, um, I want us to be able to share it together. Um, and I hope it's not too awkward, but um, I'd like you to come on up and take some bread and some juice. And that can just simply mean just praying together, you know, with somebody who uh, you're sitting next to, hopefully, ideally you might know them. If you don't, you're going to make a new friend tonight. And... Um, and then we're going to we're going to finish off tonight with a with a song. I think I've got that right, Darren. Dan, yeah, that's cool. But in that same spirit of communion, and that same spirit of sharing, and that same spirit of understanding that others have been here working on your behalf, um, we're going to go out and enjoy a meal tonight together.
And uh, I know the team out there, uh, Brittany and the team, have been working real hard all, all day to make sure that you have a really enjoyable experience of being Christians in fellowship with one another and you get to experience the goodness of God that extends from this table into fellowship with one another, realizing that others have made this meal for you and an appreciation for all that God has given you. That's all they ever want is that God gets the thanks for these things. Yeah. So, hey, Paul, would you better take the, the uh, tablecloth off there? Because I want to keep this really, really simple. I'm just going to invite the band to come out. And um, they're going to play a little bit of music leading into their final song. Um, but I'm going to pray. And then I'm just going to invite you to come on up. Got big chunks of bread here. Don't be scared to rip some off. Take a, a big, big lump. And then go and, and go and share that with someone. And just pray, remind each other of the goodness of God and the story that we share with Jesus' death and resurrection. Can we do that? Lord, we, we are reminded of um, today of traditions, traditions that have given us an identity. Within our own families, we have these traditions, be they little or, or large. And yet within the Christian story, we have a tradition that goes back to the time of Moses. When people were found in slavery and bondage, to an enemy that wouldn't let them go. And that's been our story, Lord. There have been times in our lives we've been in bondage to a sin, to an enemy that wouldn't let us go. But you've given us the victory over, over sin and over death. And then the story continued to the time of Jesus when he sat with his disciples and he said, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood spilt for you. And then like a lamb to the slaughter, Jesus went to the cross. For us, for each of us. And now in 2019, we get to share it together with the people, who, Lord, who you've put on the planet at this time, people who you've put into this room this time. And we get to share it. And we remember those thousands of years. And we, we are grafted into this story. This powerful story now becomes ours. This story is about my people, this story is about me. This is my tradition. This is my culture. This is my table. And so for this reason, Lord, we want to share this and we want to remember you today and remind ourselves of all that you've done for us. And as we go out into the cafe and enjoy the bounty of, of what's laid in front of us, Lord, we realize that once again, we're served by those who don't look for applause, but we looked, they look to glorify you. And we're reminded that there are people around us doing things in your name that serve us just in the way that this, this table serves us. So God, we're grateful. We're grateful for the rain. We're grateful for the sunshine. We're grateful for the dirt, the earth that grows things for us. We're grateful for the huge story that we're part of. And in this moment, we just stand in awe. Stand in awe and give you thanks for all the things that you've done. Let us eat and drink together. In Jesus' name, amen. So make your way, make your way and enjoy this meal together.